this week, Honduras is supposed to have a new leader, and her name is Xiomara Castro. She'll be the Central American country's first female president. About time. But la presidenta has a daunting task in front of her. Her countrymen continue to leave the nation, tired of poverty, government corruption, and violence. And the legislative majority she was counting on to help her reform Honduras, it's now gone. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. For many Americans, Honduras conjures up images of mainly one thing, migrant caravans. The throng of Honduran immigrants continues their trek under the blazing sun toward the U.S. border. Mexican National Guardsmen in riot gear and Mexican immigration agents rounded up 800 Central American migrants. President Trump says he's warned the president of Honduras. If this large caravan of people heading toward the U.S. is not stopped and turned back, that country will receive no more money from the U.S. U.S. politicians have used these headlines to depict a small, faraway country as a menace to our national security. Of course, the country's way more complex than that. So today, we'll talk about how Castro promises to solve her country's problems. But in light of what's happening right now in the National Congress of Honduras, will she even get a chance? Tensions were high when Hondurans went to the polls last November. It had been a bitter fight between the conservative National Party, which had been in power for 12 years, and Castro's leftist Libre Party, Libre meaning free, a real right versus left brawl. Castro is a self-described democratic socialist. She promised to bring Honduras back from the, quote, abyss. And after she won, crowds took to the streets to celebrate. But just this past Friday, some members of Libra announced it would form a coalition with their rivals at the National Party. So that means that the person Castro wants to lead Congress and help put her policies into place, they're not going to get that power. And the resulting battle has turned those street celebrations from the fall into protests. Here to talk about all of this is LA Times Latin America correspondent Kate Linthicum. Kate, welcome to The Times. Thank you. So Honduras, you know about it, I know about it, but most Americans probably don't. Why hasn't it been historically on the American mind like, say, other Central American nations like Guatemala or El Salvador? Yeah, so Honduras is a really tiny country. It has less than 10 million people, and it has a really different history than those other countries. The United States government and corporations had really big roles in shaping and destabilizing all three of those countries. But Honduras was less of a Cold War battleground than El Salvador or Guatemala. And historically, it's had less immigration to the U.S., although in recent years, we've seen a lot more Honduran migrants coming. So there's less of a diaspora community here in the U.S. than from some of those other countries. Yeah, no, definitely Hondurans are like in L.A. and D.C. and New York, but it's always been smaller. But then in recent years, Americans, if they're hearing about Honduras at all, it's because of those migrant caravans that I mentioned earlier. What's interesting to me, it's not even the poorest country in Central America, but those caravans, you know, started in Honduras are filled mostly with them. So what are the issues that are pushing them to flee their country right now? I mean, the last decade or so in Honduras has been extremely tumultuous. You have things like COVID and 
hurricanes, natural disasters, but you also have this political crisis um, that started in 2009 when the democratically elected president, Mel Zelaya, was ousted in a coup. And so ever since then, the country's been sort of racked with protests and repression of those protests. And the economic situation is terrible. Over 50% of Hondurans lived below the poverty line before the pandemic, and there's a lot of violence in the country. It's been one of the homicide capitals of the world for years now, and so people don't really see a lot of hope, um, or at least they didn't. So upon all this comes Xiomara Castro. Who is she? What's her story? Yeah, so Xiomara Castro replaces Juan Orlando Hernandez, a right-wing president who served two terms in Honduras and who had largely lost the support of the people. Castro is a former first lady of Honduras and is actually the wife of Mel Zelaya, the former leftist president I mentioned. Yeah, the coup in 2009. Talk a little bit about that and how that incident has played into his wife's election. So Zelaya came from a wealthy Honduran family, but once he was elected, really started sort of aligning more with the left. You know, he was an ally, a friend of Cuba, of Hugo Chavez, of sort of the pink tide of, of leftist politicians we saw across Latin America. And that, you know, earned him enemies among the right in his country. The president of Honduras was arrested by soldiers. They came to his house and have disarmed his security staff. So in 2009, he was basically marched out of his house at gunpoint, still in his pajamas, and flown out of the country by the military, and, and a new leader was elected shortly after of a right-wing party. The new government is definitely entrenching itself with each day that passes. Zelaya is in El Salvador now. He has said that he is going to try to come back again. So during the time of her husband's exile and all of this political upheaval, his wife became kind of this figurehead of the movement, you know, for the left and sort of, you know, anti-imperialist movement. She held massive rallies in Honduras and really became seen as someone who brought movements, particularly from the left, but basically anybody who was outraged over what had happened to her husband. She brought them together and sort of formed a, a coalition that ultimately brought her to victory just last year. So Xiomara is the advocate, basically, for her husband as he's in exile. At what point does she say, I want to run, I want to become the president? So she ran for president in 2013 and lost. But this year, things were different. She had the support of a wide coalition of parties. So people from the left, but also kind of more the center. She also had support from a really popular politician who had run against the former president, Juan Orlando and many people believed he had won, but ultimately won Orlando stayed in power. The opposition candidate Salvador Nasrallah has grudgingly conceded defeat. And so he was another kind of figurehead of the, of the democratic movement. And when he threw his support behind Castro, it was over. And they won with just an astounding number of votes. Um, she got more votes than any other president in Honduran history. 
What's interesting about Salvador Nazaraya, this leader, was that he could have probably run, but he saw in Xiomara someone who could be like this coalition candidate that could unite all these different factions. Yeah, I think it was a sign of just how sort of fed up people were and how united the opposition had become in the face of 12 years of rule from the right-wing National Party. You know, this was a period where the president was basically accused by American prosecutors of being a narco-trafficker. People really felt like they were living in a narco-state, and they had had it. So yes, all of these people who, who maybe in the past wouldn't have been on the same team, they united behind one candidate, and that was Castro. Vamos a iniciar un proceso en toda Honduras. We'll be back after this break. Kate, Xiomara Castro won the election convincingly, as you said, and even her opponent, the mayor of Honduras's capital, Tegucigalpa, he was pretty quick to concede. And that was a totally different end compared to the last presidential election in 2017, when a lot of people challenged the results and took to the streets. And you reported on that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a completely different picture. You know, last month we saw huge street celebrations, these very quick call of the results that was so different than in 2017. You basically had a very close election that many people believe was manipulated by the incumbent Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was accused of basically shutting down the vote counting process and taking the computers offline for several hours. Um, And during that outage, you know, mysteriously, the vote count changed, giving him the lead. He declared victory in this election that everybody said was a farce. Um, And you had countries around the world clamoring, calling for a re-election, but he took power. So in the wake of that, we saw just terrible violence in the street. People protesting, just brutal repression by Honduran police officers and soldiers. You mentioned Juan Orlando Hernandez, the outgoing president. And yeah, also this case that's going on in New York right now with federal prosecutors who want to ask him some questions. What's the case about? Yeah, so Juan Orlando Hernandez has been named in multiple drug cases as a co-conspirator. Basically, his brother has been convicted of drug trafficking, of trafficking drugs to the United States. We've had multiple cases at this point that have mentioned him as somebody who used basically state resources to traffic drugs across Honduras and to the United States. So now there's a real expectation that U.S. prosecutors are going to try to put him on trial. The question is, you know, will they be able to? So what Juan Orlando does in the next you know, months and years is really interesting. I mean, some people have speculated that he might kind of exile himself to a place like Nicaragua, where he has friends, to avoid, you know, being caught by the Americans. It must be pointed out that formal charges haven't been filed against Juan Orlando Hernandez yet, but the lawsuits do show him as an unindicted co-conspirator. So Castro, Xiomara Castro has a lot of work ahead of her. I mean, your country being described by American prosecutors as a quote, this is a quote, narco state. Damn. Uh, So how does she plan to crack down on the cartels? 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think she has a ton of work ahead of her because while we've seen these really high level accusations of conspiracy at the highest level, you know, with the president of drug trafficking in the country, there's a, a clear sense that this happens sort of at all levels across Honduras. You have municipal um, mayors and people more sort of at the lower levels who are also collaborating with drug traffickers or who are traffickers themselves. It's a big uphill battle to root out corruption when it's so pervasive. She has talked about bringing back some anti-corruption bodies that would basically have the mandate to investigate corruption across the country. You know, there was this wave a few years ago beginning in Guatemala, where you had these amazing anti-corruption bodies created and that actually were extremely successful in kind of bringing cases against corrupt people. But in recent years, you know, from Guatemala to Honduras, you've seen those in power try to dismantle those anti-corruption bodies. And she's promised to try to bring them back. And then you have the Honduran economy, which you mentioned before, it's been suffering for not just the past decade, but from decades. You had pandemic, of course, these past couple of years, and then two hurricanes. But Honduras arguably has been hurting ever since Hurricane Mitch, which happened in 1998. Here in Tegucigalpa, it's pouring buckets. And killed about 7,000 Hondurans. That's the deadliest hurricane to ever strike Central America. It has resulted in severe flooding, roads being cut off. Bridges being washed out, communities being cut off. And in fact, because of Hurricane Mitch, Hondurans in the United States live under what's called temporary protected status. Basically, if ICE agents catch them, they can't automatically be deported. So what plans does Castro have to get the country growing economically again? Yeah, so she's talked about some pretty innovative, pretty different proposals. She's talked about something like a universal basic income, so giving kind of money directly to Honduran citizens but you're right, it's a it's a huge uphill battle. Honduras is a country, you know, where a quarter of its GDP comes from remittances sent from immigrants in the US. Wow. So that gives you a sense of of sort of where the economy is. Interestingly, you know, the politicians who came before her from the right had been promoting these kind of special economic zones where corporations from the United States, for example, could operate and get a ton of tax breaks stuff like that. You know, the, the right says that's the way to ignite the economy in Honduras. And the left says that that's, you know, akin to kind of like a new colonialism. Yeah, it sounds like the old United Fruit Company, Banana Republic things. Yeah, it's like classic neoliberal playbook. So Castro has really opposed that. So we're likely to see sort of some actions against those special economic zones. So sort of how that all plays out is kind of time will tell. You know, at the same time, you have climate change, which is just devastating parts of the country. You know, there's this whole dry corridor forming across Central America that's making it really hard for people who depend on agriculture to feed themselves and to feed the country. So that's another thing at play here when we talk about the economy and ultimately when we talk about migration. Yeah, and that's a big question that both Honduran and American officials ultimately have about migration. The Biden administration policies now seems to be, quote, stay in your country. That's what Vice President Kamala Harris said in Guatemala. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. What has Castro said about her plans to work with the U.S. administration on this issue? 
you know, I think she's prepared to work with the U.S. on this issue. I mean, she needs to, right? The U.S. is a, a huge, huge deliverer of aid to the country. And I think there are a lot of questions about how the Biden administration will do aid differently or not from past American administrations that have tried and frankly failed to mitigate migration. Yeah, then over the weekend, it became apparent that solving all of these issues is going to be even more difficult for Castro. Quickly, what's all the infighting about that's going on right now? Yeah, so Honduras, you know, was poised for a celebration with the inauguration of Castro. It's really devolved into a political crisis in recent days. You know, the infighting is over who controls Congress. Castro had made this deal with Nasrallah, the character I mentioned earlier, who had joined with her to form this coalition when she was running for president. He ended up being her vice president. And she had promised his party basically control of Congress. Then this week, several of Castro's party members rebelled and joined forces with the national party that controls the presidency currently to elect their own member to head Congress. Castro, in return, you know, her loyalists elected their own member of Congress. So right now in Honduras, we have basically two parallel legislatures and two parallel heads of the legislature. They're kind of at a loggerheads. How is all of this uncertainty now going to affect Castro's plans? Well, it definitely weakens her mandate. This means that she will not have support in Congress that she needed to pass some of her proposed reforms. And there's a lot of concern in Honduras right now that the country could kind of devolve again. People are really mad right now about what they feel is this betrayal. So I think it's very likely that we're going to see some of that angst spill over into the streets. And of course, that matters to the U.S. because political instability in Honduras means more migration north. Kate, thank you as always for your insight. Thank you. Coming up... We head to the U.S.-Mexico border to hear from a Honduran migrant about the recent election and her thoughts about the future of her country. Welcome back. The Times of Supervising Editor, Kinsey Moreland, she recently went to Tijuana to visit a migrant encampment. It's underneath the freeway overpass that just steps away from the U.S.-Mexico border fence. There, she met Honduran refugee Jennifer Torres. Jennifer's been there for eight months and is one of dozens of asylum seekers who have ended up at this camp to wait for their claims to go through the U.S. asylum system. Here's Kinsey. Just a few hundred feet away from the actual border fence separating San Diego from Tijuana, a chain-link fence surrounds a cluster of tents set up under a highway on-ramp, which serves as one extra layer of protection from the sun and the rain. For dozens of migrants, men, women, and children from Central America, Haiti, and other parts of Mexico and the world, this is home. Mi nombre es Jennifer Torres. Jennifer Torres? 
Jennifer lives in this migrant camp, and she told me she left her home in Honduras because crime and government corruption is just out of control. She says the last straw came when criminals tried to force her to pay bribes just to keep her business open. I asked Jennifer if she thinks this type of crime and corruption will change with Ciamara Castro in office. In short, she said no, absolutely not. She thinks it'll just be more of the same. There is one upside to Honduras's new first-ever female president, though. Jennifer says, generally speaking, Hondurans can be a bit masculine or macho, and she thinks the new president might be able to help with that. But for now, living in this tent underneath this freeway overpass, as she continues to wait for her case to make its way through the U.S. asylum system, Jennifer says she has more immediate concerns to worry about. Lo siento. Muchas, muchas gracias. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, what it's like to be trapped on a cruise ship during a COVID quarantine. Quick preview, it ain't fun. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Lauren Rabb and Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>